morning. Look with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 as we continue this journey in the summer through the Psalms. You'll remember just a few weeks ago, Pastor Travis began for us our journey in Psalm 61. Psalm 61, Psalm 62, Psalm 63 have a number of themes that echo together. They appear to be laments of some period of struggle in the life of of David. In fact, you can see this in the subscription of this psalm in Psalm 63. Most of your Bibles records it. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Just by that designation of wilderness, we know and understand something is not right. Very few good things take place in the wilderness. This Psalm 63 begins like a psalm of lament, much like what we saw in Psalm 61 and Psalm 62 and into Psalm 63. And yet, in each one of these psalms of lament, Psalm 61 and and Psalm 62, and then at the end of those two, in the beginning of Psalm 63, they express this incredible, deep hope and trust and the faithfulness of God to be one who regularly pours out his steadfast love on his people. Psalm 61, David begins, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. And then notice how he concludes in verse 7 of 61. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 62 begins with this cry. My father preached from Psalm 62 last week. David expresses this moment in which he is alone before God by himself. Psalm 62 verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. David is by himself, but notice how the psalm closes with this deep abiding trust and hope and who God is, verse 12, and that you, O Lord, belongs what? Steadfast love. God's covenantal faithfulness to his people never ends. And then notice how this psalm begins, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is what? Better than life itself. David expresses through these three psalms, even in the midst of incredible difficulty, a complete, firm trust, hope, confidence in the very character of God himself. And we learn here from Psalm 63, our confidence, our trust in God sustains us during difficulties. Our confidence, our trust and God sustains us in difficulties. And notice what this text teaches us, gives us hope in God's provision for the future. And gives us hope for God's provision in the future. Notice how David begins here in verses 1 through 2. He expresses his desire for God. David expresses his desire for God. Oh God, You are my God. Eternally, I 
seek you earnestly. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David begins this cry. He begins this psalm in some ways as a psalm of lament concerning the difficulty and struggle that David finds himself in. We know that David is is in the wilderness. We know that there are two larger narratives of David finding himself in the wilderness down in Judah. One at the beginning of his period as reign of king over Israel and one at the conclusion of his reign. David begins his reign having to flee Saul down in the wilderness of Judah. And then David concludes his ministry, if you will, back in the wilderness running from Absalom. This past week, we had the journey of, we had the joy of journeying through, through Israel, and we spend a little bit of time just over in the wilderness. I want you to see this image I took of the wilderness there in Israel. You'll notice there is a little bit of green grass, just a, a, a greenery. It's because the place that I took the picture from, but you'll notice, maybe you'll notice on the screens, I'm not sure, perhaps you'll notice on the screens that this wilderness, there is absolutely nothing around. It's, it's dry, just as the text says, a dry and weary land where there is no water or picture. It's exceedingly, it's exceedingly difficult. In fact, you, you go out into the wilderness, and it's very, very hot. And it doesn't take but just a moment before you're dehydrated. Some of you maybe have spent time out in the West in the in Arizona, for example, it only takes a moment out in that desert before you become exceedingly thirsty. Your mouth dries out. Your lips become exceedingly dry, and it's there in that moment, in a period of great desperation, that David cries out, to the Lord. I don't know the circumstance of your heart this morning. I don't know what you've experienced in life this past week, this past month. But perhaps like David, you feel in this moment you too are in the wilderness. Perhaps you're in a wilderness due to no circumstances of your own, just the experience of life. David for sure was not in the wilderness because of an experience of his own. David was not the little shepherd boy out in the field jumping up and down saying, yes, I want to be king of Israel. No, David was a little shepherd boy out in the field away from all of his brothers when God sent the prophet. said, no, not this one. And not that one, and not that one, and not that one. Surely you have another son. And God anointed David to be king. David is in the wilderness, not of his own doing, but of God's sovereign direction 
in his life. That happens sometimes with you and me. Let's be honest, church family. Sometimes we're in the wilderness due to our own sin. And by the way, neither is David unfamiliar with being in the wilderness due to his own sin, is he? David, too, knew what it was like to be in the wilderness, if you will, due to wickedness, rebellion against God. But regardless of why you are in the wilderness, or perhaps you're in the wilderness this morning, regardless of why David was in the wilderness in this text, whether at the beginning of his reign or at the end of his reign, the wilderness isn't the focus of this text of Scripture. Notice who the focus of this text of Scripture is. David begins with that right focus, with the recounting of these two names of God, Elohim and El, at the very beginning of this text of Scripture. Oh God, you are my God. David recounts this firm, deep confidence and trust, not in who David is, but solely in who God is. And notice what David says here. Friend, oftentimes when, I, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, our hearts cry as, Lord, remove this distress from me. Remove this difficulty for me. The way we understand the help of God, the way we understand the relief of God, the way we understand freedom from God is by saying, Lord, remove this circumstance from my life. But notice David isn't praying for that, and the text for sure isn't communicating that. This text of Scripture is showing us that our help comes not from the end of our struggles, Our help comes only from a deep and abiding faith and trust in who God is. Friend, we can face whatever wilderness and life we are in, not from by being removed from the wilderness, but from increasing our faith and our hope and our trust in King Jesus. David, through this psalm, is going to express a deep and abiding confidence and trust in who God is, even in the midst of great distress. Are you there this morning? Is that your heart's posture before God today? Are you resting and the confidence of who God is as you face a wilderness, a dreary and dry land experience in your life. Friends, one of the things that I have so enjoyed over the course of the last five years of going through the Psalms is this type of expression occurs over and over and over And over again, and you've heard me say it potentially 63 times. If your heart is not resting today in a settled position of the goodness and the greatness of God, 
then don't be surprised when your wilderness experience comes and your faith and your trust in God decreases and not increases. Settle in your heart now. Purpose in your mind now. Rest in a settled position now. That God is great. That God is greatly to be praised. That there is only one in whom you and I can find relief. And it's only in the person of God. But notice what David does in verse 2. David is going to be reminded of God's past revelation of himself to David. What is sustaining David, as the text of Scripture says, in this dry and weary land where there is no water? What's given to him a sense of confidence and trust? Verse 2, thus, or as some of our English Bible says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now David precedes the construction of the temple. David will not build the temple, will he? Who will build the temple? His son, Solomon. Solomon will build the temple. Nevertheless, David and the nation of Israel, there was a place for them to go and to experience the presence of the divine. Through the tent or through the sanctuary. And by the way, during David's period of time, what was held, what was the image of the very presence of God for David? The Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was in the sanctuary. The Ark of the Covenant was in the, in the tent. That was the place of worship. That was the place where God's, God's presence was housed, was stored, was experienced. So notice what David is doing. He's, he's surveying the scene. He's, he's looking at his current situation. He knows that he's away from Jerusalem. He knows that he's away from the sanctuary. He knows he's away, if you will, from the very presence of God. And so what is sustaining David during this moment of great difficulty and trial and distress what is sustaining David is his past experience of the very presence of God. The presence of God communicated through the Ark of the Covenant, but not only through the Ark of the Covenant, there were two other images in this sanctuary, in this tent, that would bring to mind for, for David that he has looked upon the very presence of God beholding the power and the glory of God in the sanctuary. For it was in the sanctuary that the priests would carry out sacrifices. So what was David missing from being out in the wilderness and not being in Jerusalem where the sanctuary was? David was missing that regular communication of God's glory through redemption 
of sacrifice. But the decor of the sanctuary of the tent would have also communicated the very power and might of God through creation. David was missing that regular reminder of God's might and God's power in creation. Friends, when we together, when we come together in the worship of our triune God, we too are gathering to be reminded of God's redemption and God's powerful acts through creation. But we don't come to a sanctuary We don't come to a tent. We don't come to a temple. We don't perform sacrifices. For there is one sacrifice that has been given for all of humanity. That's the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus. We gather every week to be reminded of that sacrifice that God, through Christ, has made on our behalf. We do that through the words that are proclaimed. We do that through the image of baptism. We do that through the image of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And like David, we are reminded of God's power and God's glory. And as an aside, I think a fair fair application of this text, while not being the point of this text, is that you and I so desperately need this expression today of corporate worship. For God has designed this moment in my life and in your life and our lives to be a regular reminder of God's power and God's glory. And notice how David desires that. Look how the text of Scripture paints that. So I have looked upon with great intent with great desire. This is how David is reflecting upon it back in verse one. My soul faints for you. My soul thirsts for you. David has a deep desire to be connected closely to God. And friends, aren't you thankful this morning that at the end of the day, we don't have to make a trip to the top of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem to experience the presence of God Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we have been given the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And that presence for those who by faith have trusted in Jesus is a continual dwelling presence in our hearts and our lives. And the question is, do you have a deep longing Desire to know God more? To experience God more? To be reminded of His work in redemption and His power through creation? What is your greatest desire? What is your greatest hope? Is 
Is it family? Friends? Status? A certain vehicle? Certain technology? What is David's driving passion? To know God. So David in verses 1 and 2 expresses his desire for God. Notice what he does here in verses 3 through 8. David expresses his deep trust in God. He first begins with a reflection on God's character and then he moves to reflection on God's word. As David expresses his trust in God, notice how he reflects on God's character. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips, with lips of ringing cries. Literally from the Hebrew. This is David's expression of trust in God. What leads David to this expression of trust in God? A reflection on the very character of God. And you even see it in your English Bibles. Because of your chesed, your steadfast love. God has revealed himself in this manner going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. As God makes this revelation of who he is to the nation of Israel. What would be the thing that sustains the nation of Israel as they make this journey toward the promised land? The one thing that would sustain the nation of Israel would be a right understanding of who God is, of the very character of God. And so God makes this revelation to the nation of Israel at the conclusion of Deuteronomy. And one of those characteristics that he reveals himself is one who is abounding in steadfast love. And do you see what David says? My trust in God is secure, not because of who I am, but because of who you are, God, because of your very character. And notice this character of God. This character of God is not better than simply an aspect of life. Oh God, I love you better than my iPhone. Woohoo! Pat yourself on the back, you're doing well. Oh God, I love you more than those grandkids. Most of you are lying. Oh God, I love you more than... Just fill in the blank, right? This isn't what David is saying. David is saying, Lord, I love you actually more than life itself. More than every expression of what you might be able to say brings joy to your life. Time with family, grandkids, work, whatever it might be. 
All of those expressions of life pale in light of the glory that comes through knowing God and knowing God through his steadfast love. Let me put it in a New Testament perspective for us, friends. What David is saying, (coughs) the greatest joy in all of life is knowing God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ and applied to your life by the power of the Spirit. There is no greater joy in life than knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as a resurrected king of your life and my life. Is Jesus this morning truly the greatest delight in your life? Can that be said of your heart at this moment? Notice what happens as David reflects on the character of God. Four ways David mentions that a reflection on the character of God leads his life to a life of praise, to a life of worship. Notice them real quick. Beginning here in the text, it first occurs in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, what will happen? My lips will praise you. Now hold on to this image of lips. We're going to see that at the conclusion of this text of Scripture. When we reflect on who Jesus is, when we reflect on what Christ has done on my behalf, what Jesus has done on your behalf, notice what David is saying. It leads to a natural response. What is that natural response in our hearts? That our lips that our mouths might communicate the greatness and the goodness of what God has done through Jesus. My lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will lift up my hands. I'm I'm going to give my life an acknowledgement of who you are. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. Literally, so I will bless you with my life. Lips, his life, his hands. And then notice how David concludes in the fourth and verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So David is saying, he bookends one's response to God. He begins it with Praise with our lips, and he concludes it with praise from our mouth. David is saying that there is a response that the people of God should give in light of what God has done for us through Christ, and that is a life filled with praise. What are you known for? What are you known for communicating? People know you more as the one who has the most up-to-date information on LSU basketball or baseball or football or cheerleading. Do people know you more as the one who's the most up-to-date on whatever video game system is out? Are you known more because of your 
your wisdom and your understanding of the petrochemical industry in Baton Rouge. The fine elements of engineering. David is giving an expression of the totality of his life. When David reflects on the very character of God, David says, my life is given to one ambition, the praise of God. And friends, watch this. The praise of God cannot take place apart from your mouth and my mouth declaring his goodness. Don't buy into a narrative that you'll simply praise God by the life that you live before others so that others might see, perhaps see, by chance see, a distinction in your life and theirs. No, David is saying that we must live our lives with intentionality in declaring who God is. Both in the context of the gathering of the worship of God, when the people of God gather, we ought to praise God with our lips, but not just in the context of the gathering of the people of God with the totality of our lives. David expresses this trust in God as he reflects on the character of God, but then notice what he says next. He expresses a confidence, a trust in God as he reflects on the very word of God itself. Verse six, when I remember you upon my bed and, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David moves from verses 1 and 2 in being in distress to now being satisfied. And David is satisfied as he reflects upon the character of God and as he reflects upon the word of God. What does it mean to remember God in my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night? How do we meditate on the Lord? By the way, just for clarity, I want to make sure we all understand the circumstance that David is speaking of, or the circumstances in which David is speaking have not changed. David is still in the wilderness. David is still in a dry and weary land. But notice what David is saying he's doing in the midst of that dry and weary land. David says, Lord, when my head hits the pillow at night, when I lie down at night, my soul meditates on your word. David, in some ways, becomes a man of Psalm, of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on that law he does what? Meditates day and night. David is not saying that he's conjured up some type of image of God, and so he's sitting in, in bed, uh, you, you know, singing Kumbaya, thinking of all these wonderful, nice, warm, fuzzy feelings of who God is. No, David is being very specific. As he's meditating on God, he knows God only in one way, friend. He knows God through his word. 
And I would submit to you humbly this morning that there is only one way for you and me to know exactly who God is. While we can look out on creation, as Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 1, and we can see God as this divine being who has created, there is only one way that you or I know intimately who is God, and it's through His Word. Are you meditating on the Word of God? Are you spending time in your life reflecting on the Word of God? David is only sustained in the midst of deep, dark distress because he intimately knows God. You will not be sustained in the wilderness if you don't know God. It will be a continual, dry, and weary land. Notice what David says, my soul meditates upon you when in the watches of the night. The Old Testament, there were three watches of the night that took place. You see this carried out in a number of examples. You can go back to Judges chapter 7, a story of, of, of Gideon, uh, Joshua, and, uh, sorry, uh, Joshua and, and Gideon and, and the men, and they were going to... Um, uh, slay the people at, at Gideon Springs. And at the third watch of the night, the Bible says, Gideon took the men down by the springs to see how they'd lap water. But David is saying, through the night, Lord, my heart is being settled on who you are. In other words, David is saying, in some ways, we are what we contemplate. We are what we contemplate. Is God foremost in your thoughts this morning? David moves from this expression of of trust in God. He closes here in verses 9 and 11, expressing this great hope in God's provision in the future. David isn't only reflecting upon God's character that he's revealed of himself in the past. David isn't only reflecting upon what he misses in the worship of God in the tent or in the sanctuary. David is also forward-looking, expressing deep hope in God's acts in the future. Look what he says, verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life, what will happen to them? They shall go down in the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. 
David in the midst of this distress, David in the middle of this this battle, David in the middle of these difficulties, David is also forward-looking. David knows of the promises of God. David is reminded of that day when he was in that field when the prophet of God came knocking and said, you are God's man. David remembers that moment of anointed. David remembers the promises of God. (coughs) And David knows that this is not the end of the fulfillment of God's promises to him. There is another day coming. And how does David reflect upon that? He acknowledges the destruction of his enemies. He acknowledges what God will do to those who set their hand against the anointed. He acknowledges what God will do to those who have set themselves against not primarily Israel's king, but Israel's God. For those of you who were in Israel with us, you might have heard Dr. Eric Mitchell, who was on the trip with us, a professor of Old Testament archaeology, note that he believes King Saul was an unregenerate man. What might be some evidences that King Saul was an unregenerate man? Psalm 63, verse 9, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down in the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. Who was seeking the destruction of David's life ultimately? Saul. See, friends, this is an image of judgment and of destruction. And I'd submit to you this morning that this is exactly what happened to Saul. Saul and his three sons were slain. They were brought back to Bethshean and stacked on the wall in the city. Brought to destruction. And friend, may I say to you this morning that David's hope for God's provision in the future is a hope ultimately and a faith and a trust in God's word And part of that is the judgment of God. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in God's provision through Jesus, I want you to know that this is a statement not just against David's enemies. It's a statement of trust of of God's judgment and destruction of all of God's enemies and a rejection of Jesus as Lord places you in the camp of an enemy of God, not a lover of God. Are you headed for destruction this morning? Is this an image of your life? For all who reject Jesus as Lord shall be given over to the power of the sword of destruction, of death.
but there's a way to avoid it. Look at verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now everybody go with me to verse 11. And look at that second line of verse 11. Well, let's go back to verse 11, the first part, and ask the question, who is the king? But the king shall rejoice in God. Contextually, it's not a trick question. Contextually, who is the king? David. Saul is still the king, if we're talking about the first part of his life. But but by this time, David has already been anointed. So David, look at the second line, all who swear by him shall exalt. Who is the him? You're quiet. Oh, thank you, Brother Art. I appreciate that. God. Well, there's a sense of ambiguity in the language. My Bible, like most of your Bibles, has him in lowercase or uppercase? Lower. So verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. This is David saying, Lord, because I've reflected on, on your... On your on your care to the Lord, because I've reflected on your word. God, because I remember your past acts, because I remember the worship of you in the temple, because I, re- I remember the worship of you in the sanctuary, because I've been close to the very presence of God, my life is going to be one that continually exalts in the Lord. I'm going to continually rejoice in what you, God, have done for me. And all who swear by him shall exalt. Who is the him? The text is somewhat ambiguous, but whether it's the king of Israel or Israel's God, what you do see in this text of scripture is a close connection between the two. We know from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God has said to King David, through you, Always and forever will there be a king who reigns over the people of God who flow from the lineage of David. Who do we know that king to be to this day? Jesus. David is acknowledging this great faith and this great hope and this great trust in God's, in God's, provident, uh, uh, God's provision and all who swear by him, all who swear by King Jesus will always praise and hope and trust. And look what it leads to. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now who praises? Who rejoices? Or we might ask, who runs their mouth now? The enemies of God 
or the people of God. See, friends, there is one way for you and for me to escape the judgment that's mentioned in verses 9 and 10. And the only way for you and me to escape the judgment that is mentioned in these verses is for us to give our lives in total to King Jesus. For there is one king that reigns over the people of God who ultimately fulfills Psalm 63 perfectly, and it's not King David. It's King Jesus. Will you exalt in him? Will you worship him? Will you trust in his provision for the future that what he says indeed is going to happen? As we, in some ways, wait in this wilderness for King Jesus' second coming. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the revelation of yourself to us through your word. We thank you that you and you alone sustain our hearts and our lives in the middle of a weary and dry land. We thank you, God, that you and you alone are our eternal king. And even as we heard the choir sing this morning, my God, I love thee not because I hope for heaven thereby, nor yet because who love thee not may eternally die. Lord, we love you solely because thou art my God and my eternal King. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and respond and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? Are you hoping well in God today? In the middle of your wilderness experience, could you pin these words of great hope? Perhaps your response to the preaching of God's word this morning needs to be to ask the Spirit of God to increase your faith and your trust and your hope in King Jesus. Would you do that this morning? Perhaps your response needs to be a commitment to Spend more time reflecting on the character of God and meditating on the Word of God so that in a moment of wilderness, your heart and your mind might be settled upon who God is and thus be sustained. Would you commit anew this morning to pursuing God through His Word? Or perhaps, friend, the reason you're in the wilderness 
is because you've always been in the wilderness. And the only way for you to come out of the wilderness is by faith and hope and trust in Jesus. So that your response to the preaching of God's word today is to call on the name of the Lord, for the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a few moments, we're gonna stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here this morning and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, this would be an opportunity for you to come forward. Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward to speak to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. So feel free to turn to someone seated next to you and ask them, how may I trust in Christ? Secondly, perhaps you'd like for one of us to pray with you. That the truths of this text might indeed be evident in your life. That your life might be grounded and rooted firmly in who God is through his word. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with God. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest and being part of this faith family. Father, as we respond to you now, we ask that our responses might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.